Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Uh, you see that this is now this week is Luke part 82 uh, during our time in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And, and you know, I'm kind of fairly accustomed to getting the occasional complaint from, you know, from members, older members, younger members. Uh, well, this week we started getting some complaints from our kids uh, in our church. So things are starting to get out of hand. Um, their complaint is that they are tired of seeing this Luke uh, logo on the front of the bulletin. They're like, can we just hurry up and do something else, please? Um, so, not yet, we're, we're, but we're getting there. Can't overemphasize uh, just how much Jesus challenged the establishment during his day, right? Um, Jesus did not and continues to not fit into a two-party system. You know, throughout Luke, we've seen that Jesus is far more inclusive and far more compassionate than the most bleeding heart of liberals. And at the same time, Jesus is more conservative than the most staunch of conservatives, and as we've seen as these different groups over the last few weeks have come to confront and rebuke Jesus, in his response we've been finding that Jesus' way, that the way of the kingdom, isn't some squishy middle ground between the two, that following Jesus isn't to be a republicrat. No, to follow Christ in many ways transcends the categories of our fallen world I've shared this before, but to this one pastor said, if someone asks if you're a liberal or a, or a conservative, you just say, neither. I'm, I'm a Christian. Jesus doesn't fit in a box. And thus, those who follow Jesus uh, don't fit into boxes uh, either. Uh, so we've seen the Pharisees and the scribes challenge Jesus on his authority. Last week, Josh walked us through the Herodians and the Pharisees challenging Jesus on well, well, taxes. And then this morning, we're going to see Jesus hit for the cycle by being confronted by the Sadducees. And, and what is going to make this passage particularly important is that in our culture, uh, in our schools, in our homes, in our, the way that we actually live out our day-to-day -day lives, it's oftentimes more in line with the theology of the Sadducees uh, than it is the Jesus way. And so not to sound like a melodramatic preacher, but understanding what Jesus is laying out for us in this passage is profoundly important to the way that we walk out our life of faith in this life. And so with that, let's go to God's uh, word and dig in, shall we? Luke 20, starting with verse 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that, deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, now there were seven brothers. The first took the wife and died without children, and then the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife would the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God. Because sons of the resurrection, being sons of the resurrection, excuse me. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is God's, God's word. So around 2,000 years ago, a group of Sadducees came up to Jesus with their dead theology, and Jesus corrected them and in the process reminded us, uh, or is reminding us, of this, this, the living reality of the gospel. Uh, that's how we're going to work through this, dead theology, living reality. Um, so first, just dead theology, but before we get too far into just what's going on here, it's probably good to remember what these Sadducees, or who the, who the Sadducees were, right? Because, you know, when we read the Bible, it's tempting, at least it is to me, just to kind of lump all these religious leaders into just one category. Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they're all the same. But that would be a big-time mistake, okay? That would be like lumping in um, Ole Miss fans and state fans together. Like, no, they're all just kind of the same. Um, That that would be like lumping in people who go to the dirt track on Saturday night uh, with those who go to the ballet on Saturday night, right? And and some of y'all have been to both. I've been, having both been to a dirt track and a ballet, you know that, like, those are not the same type of people, right? They are polar opposites. Okay, well, in the same way, the, the, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, they, I mean, they basically detested each other. The, the, the Pharisees were immensely religious, ultra-conservative, and now some of them were well-to-do, some were wealthy, but not all. But they were all very serious about, about religion. Whereas the, the, the Sadducees, they were, let's, let's call them kind of religion light. Uh, they were... They, they did church for the social aspect. Um, and you know those magazines uh, that, uh, you know, have all the pictures in the back of them of all the people at the social or at the civic events, right? And uh, Richie Sessions calls those magazines the You Are Not Invited magazines, right? <laughs> Where the Sadducees, and we've, we, we know the Sadducee type because we've, we've opened the magazines and we've seen the people who are in there, right? The Sadducees were always in there. The Sadducees were always invited. Uh, they were very, very, very popular, very, very wealthy. Um, like when you think of the Sadducees, think like Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift popularity uh, mixed with Ivy League intellectual elites who vacationed in the Hamptons. And I mean, if anyone had privilege and power and influence in Israel, it is them. Okay, which begs the question: well, What makes them so special? Well, if you remember from the Old Testament. The Sadducees and, and their, their people, their predecessors before them, not only had the privilege of serving in the temple, but they also, over time, got the genetic lock on the high priestly line. Um, and remember how a few weeks ago Jesus walked into the temple and he's like, kicking over tables and he's, he's chasing people out? Well, all that money changing, all that profiteering that was happening, happening within the temple was overseen by guess who? It's the Sadducees, that's the Sadducees' business. Okay? Now, though they were socially respected, and they were in the, you know, the, in the magazines, 
Um, as can often happen with very popular and very well-to-do people, over time they only hung out with other very popular and very well-to-do people, which kind of creates this hotbed of materialistic uh, obsession and this, this hotbed of starting to look down on everybody else who isn't as popular or as wealthy as, as they. And so the Jewish historian Josephus, I, I love this, he captured what, what the common folk really thought of the Sadducees. Listen to this. He said, Sadducees were more heartless than any other of the Jews. And with their peers, they were as rude as aliens. So if, if you've ever known of any very wealthy but kind of punk, punky type people, like very wealthy but extremely rude people, you have got, that's the Sadducee. Okay? All right. Well, that's generally who they were. But what did, what did they believe? Because whether we know it or not, what we believe always comes out in how we do life. Whereas the, the Pharisees over here, the Pharisees considered all the Old Testament to be the Word of God. Um, the, the Sadducees only considered the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, to be, to be God's Word. And, and to them, if, if Moses didn't write it, then it didn't matter. Okay? And so they read the first five books of the Bible, and they decided that there is no life after death. That there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no final judgment of God, because in their opinion, Moses didn't mention any of that. Which, by the way, there are many churches today in which that is their theology, right? Uh, progressive Christians, liberal Christians, um, no supernatural, they're kind of theists at best. And as we've said, a, a good way to, to remember. We, we, we know this. This is the, the, the cheesy thing that everybody learns as a child. Um, the, way to, the easiest way to remember the beliefs of the Sadducees is they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in eternal life. Okay, so they're just constantly just sad. So, so they believed in God, but, but nothing, like nothing supernatural ever happened. So no salvation, no rebirth, no God moving through his people. They believed that you live your life here, and once you died that your body and your soul perished into nothingness, just annihilated, okay? And so because of their faith commitment to the, to, well, the bad theology, the Sadducees naturally responded, like, how would you live if, like, there is no eternal life, you got this life, and after you die, like, you're done? Well, how would you live your life? Well, they naturally responded by hoarding possessions as if all that mattered was right here and right now. Okay. We may not know any Sadducees, but, but the way of the Sadducee permeates our culture today, right? You know, we live in a land and amongst a people whose lifestyles say they reject the supernatural and rush headlong into their actual faith commitment of the here and the now. And so if there is no eternal life, if there is no resurrection, then, I mean, it naturally, look, look eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, right? If there is no supernatural, then maybe those who die with the most notches in their bedpost or the most toys really do win. If there is no supernatural, then life is no more than the pursuit of your personal pleasure. Okay? I mean, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Um, kind of sounds like the world we live in. Okay, we, we've, we've talked through this before a few times, I'm sure. But did you know that that way of or the way we've been taught to think about life as Americans is not, is not biblical at all. 
rather, it comes from this period of history called the Enlightenment, 18th century Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment decided that we don't have room for God, that God's just kind of like cramping our style. He's cramping our reason and our logic. And so um, it was a, mainly this German philosopher named Immanuel Kant, but, but uh, also John Locke and David Hume. They started kind of dividing the way that we view life into kind of two worlds, right? It was, um, they divided the supernatural, like the things which require faith, the things that you can't quite, you can't always quantify with measurements and, and calculations from the things that are, are natural, right? Things that can be measured and can be reasoned. And so they drew this very clear dividing line between the sacred and the secular, saying that these two just don't, they don't intertwine, okay? That your faith and your feelings, they are to stay private, compartmentalized, away from like real life, um, life that can be measured uh, and experienced with your five senses. And so ever since then, we've had this, our world has had this kind of separation between the sacred and the secular, and that's what we call secularism. And, and that's why believers, if, at least I hope, that we can feel so disconnected because we live in the midst of a people who do not, cannot see the sacred. Um, and so, of course, we're tempted to follow suit instead of seeing all of life as a gift of God to be lived out before his face. You know, we start doing things like everybody else. We, we come to worship on Sunday and then we kind of do our, our real living the rest of the week completely set. We're not holistic. Uh, we compartmentalize. And so can you see how we live living in a materialistic world? <laughs> can you see how utterly countercultural it is for us to come here and to gather in Christ and to say things like, we believe in the virgin birth. Like we believe not only that there is sin, but there is forgiveness of sin. That we believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, that we actually live in life everlasting, or we, we believe in life eternal. And so I, I, know for, I know for some that when we do the Apostles' Creed, we're like, what in the world are we trying to, what are we doing here? But I hope you see that, like, that confession is a wake-up call from our secular slumber. It's like, yes, there actually is a God, and there actually is supernatural things going on. Well, the Sadducees... They came up to Jesus with a question, and in their mind, this question highlighted just how utterly ridiculous this whole eternal life thing is. Verse 28, teacher Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there are seven brothers. The first one took the wife and died without children, and the second and the third, and all the way down to the seventh, and they all had no children. Afterward, the woman also died. And then here is, like, here is the question that always shut it down. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For, for seven had her as wife. And, and look, I know it's, it's obviously a hypothetical question in which the Sadducees are granting Jesus the resurrection just to prove to him how ridiculous the resurrection is. Uh, but I can't read that without thinking, like, this must be the dumbest group of brothers ever, right? If... If you're the seventh brother and all six of your brothers died being married to this woman, I mean, do, do not marry her, please. Like something, something is up with this. What they're, they're hitting on a, an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 25 called leveret marriage, which 
in the, the ancient agrarian culture, it made a lot of sense because back then they didn't have social programs. You know, back then families were, were your social program. And, and so if a woman lost her husband and she didn't have any children, then she was, I mean, any, anyone would be in dire straits in that situation. And so the law provided for a, a, the brother of the deceased husband to marry her and to raise up children who in her old age would, would be the social security, the, the, the programs, the family that would take care of her. And, and they, just, they just know they stomp Jesus. Jesus, there's no getting through this. And yet notice how easily Jesus disarmed them with the, the living reality, which is our, our second point this morning. First, Jesus, he responded, he said, look, look, your whole way of thinking through this is just wrong. I mean, lock, stock, and barrel, it's just wrong. Sadducees thought, and, and I tried to highlight this age, they thought that this age, this life was all that mattered. And so naturally, they reasoned that well, if you get married in this age, then I guess you would also get married in that age. But Jesus said, well, the Bible says, course there's some overlap right between here and and heaven but Jesus also says but there's some pretty huge differences as well uh, between this age and that age and and one of those big differences is marriage you know verse 35 is one of probably one of the most polarizing things Jesus ever said because some read that and immediately you just don't like it because you want to spend eternity with your with your spouse uh, married, right? And of course we get that. I mean, can you imagine marriage w- like without sin in the equation? Can you imagine how wonderful that would be? <laughs> but then there may be others who hear this teaching about there's not going to be he- marriage in heaven and you just can't wait. Like you- You've had about all the marital bliss you can, you can take. Uh, either response is telling, right? So look, if if you're distraught, it could mean that your earthly spouse is, a, is more beautiful to you than, than your Savior. Um, and if you just can't wait to get away from your spouse, probably means you need to try to love your spouse a little more on this earth. Um, you know, in some Christian circles, t- to get married is like the ultimate good, right? Getting married solves all problems. Just, just get married. And yet we, we see here from the words of, from the mouth of Jesus that apparently marriage is not the ultimate good. Jesus is reminding us that the marital relationship we, we have with the spouse was never meant to be an end in itself. That it was always a placeholder for something better. And so yes, awesome things about marriage. But it was always intended to point us to our true and better spouse, Jesus. You know, to this C.S. Lewis famously said, and I'm just going to paraphrase him, he said, look, we know about marriage and we know kind of about like the sexual life that exists on this earth, but we, we do not know except in glimpses the other things which in heaven will leave no room for it. Um, and if that makes you sad now, just, just know that you will not be sad in heaven. Okay, joy is the primary emotion of, of, of heaven. So having dealt with the, the marriage part, Jesus then moves to the eternal life part. You know, in, in Mark and Matthew's account of, of, this, of this happening, uh, Jesus just said, he says, you're wrong. 
He's, you're wrong because you do not know scripture. Uh, you neither know scripture nor the power of God. And he said that because there are several Old Testament passages that deal with or explicitly talk about the resurrection and eternal life. But Jesus knew his audience. And he knew that the Sadducees, for them, it didn't matter what David or Daniel or Job or Isaiah said about the resurrection. All they cared about was Moses. And so Jesus said, okay, well, let's talk about Moses then. He says, when Yahweh spoke to Moses from the burning bush, do you remember? Do you actually remember what Yahweh said? And, and though they did, they, I guess they didn't get it. Because if they did, they would have caught the verb tense that the Lord used, right? God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I, I used to be their God until they died and their body and soul ceased to exist. Now, like, you know, by this time, obviously, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've been dead for centuries. And yet here, God is still claiming to be in a present relationship with them. Present relationship. You know, Hebrews tells us that just as, as we look back to Jesus for salvation and eternal life, that the patriarchs looked forward to Jesus for salvation and eternal life. And Jesus says, look, if you just read Scripture closely, yes, even in the Pentateuch, you find that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. All right. Well, what's the gospel takeaway here? All right, as we close... You know, Jesus said, those who are worthy of eternal life, to those who are worthy of eternal life in glory, not only can they not die anymore, but they are also God's sons. They're God's daughters. Which, of course, begs the question, how is anyone worthy of something like that? Do we have to be worthy of this? And this is where things get personal. Because like Enlightenment philosophers these Sadducees, they didn't account for the gospel. They didn't account that, that something outside of their five senses would come in and would turn the world upside down. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and burst through that sacred secular dividing wall. Like, y'all remember the Kool-Aid man would burst through the wall? But Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus showed up and he said, I am the way. And I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what's more is this isn't some like subjective feeling for people that are like, you know, I just need some religion. No, Jesus' Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is historical fact. Like He is the way back to God. He really does take sinners like me. And sinners like you. And by his blood, he makes you worthy. He makes us worthy of eternal life. So in him, we are forgiven. In him, we are called God's beloved. And I love it that when God speaks of his people, he always uses these possessive pronouns. He says, I am the God of Abraham. You know, meaning, Abraham belongs to me. You, we belong to each other. And so to say that, that if you are in Christ... You know, God looks at you like, like, I am the God of William Patrick, right? Like, I am Vicky's God. I am. Well, if you are in Christ, not only can you know God, but, but you belong to God and, and He to you. And I know it's hard for us to imagine 
like a, a perfect, never letting go, always present tense love. But in glory, like, that's what we will have. And on that day, in that age, as Jesus says, the intimacy, the trust, and the loyalty that marks the very best marriages on this earth will not only be had with Jesus, but with everyone. So in heaven, can you imagine this? No one will betray you. Um, you know, we'll never walk out of a room and worry if they're talking about us back there. No one will get a laugh at our expense no one will break a promise. No one will abandon us or abuse us. No one will die on us. And what we see now dimly, we will see face to face. It'll be as, as Thomas Aquinas said, that we'll see that heaven will prove not to be a reward. You know, sometimes we think that like, all right, this is the going theology of America. If you work real hard, you do some good things, maybe you'll get to heaven and you'll earn like your angel wings or you'll get to like whatever you want to do in heaven. Like um, you'll fish and hunt and hang out on clouds. But we'll, we'll get to heaven and we won't see it as a reward so much as like this is what we were created for. To be in God's presence with our Savior in our eternal home. Y'all know some people, I know some people that are like born and raised Greenwood, never left Greenwood. Uh, they are, they are, they are going to, when they pass, they will pass in the home that they grew up in. And yet they're homesick. How do you explain that? Like you've never left home. How are you homesick? Well, this is what our eternal home is what we long for. So that's the living reality of those who are in Christ. So I just got to ask, do you know it? Do you know that? Because if you do, you don't have to fear death. Because God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. It also means that in Christ, God will always love you with a never-ending, always-present-tense kind of love. That's the gospel, y'all. And this is an invitation to receive it. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for um, just this gospel reminder of what actual, true, uh, never-ending, always present tense love looks like. And when we ask that you would help us to receive it, a little bit sheer to apply it, and just like a deep bomb to our souls, that you would meet us where we are, and then that you would take us and our souls and just further and further to be like Jesus. Lord, as we turn now from, from hearing the word to now seeing and participating in the means of your grace, I think communion, we ask that you would take these common, just everyday elements and that you would set them apart to be a means of grace to your people. Uh, Lord, may we come and respond. Uh, we feel weird. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.